You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Greetings. I would like to welcome you to a series of 12 lectures on the history of 20th century ethics. My name is David Solomon. I'm a member of the philosophy department at the University of Notre Dame, where I've been teaching this material since 1968, although not quite all of it, since not all of it had happened by 1968. I'm also the um, director of the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture, uh, an academic center in which we're very interested in the topics that uh, I'll be talking about over the next 12 lectures. I want to begin uh, today by talking a little bit about what I'm going to be doing over the next, uh, uh, the, the next 12 lectures, six hours of talk about uh, 20th century ethics. And I want to, at the very beginning, tell you some of the things that I'm not going to be uh, talking about. 20th century ethics is a very big uh, field. It covers lots and lots of things of a social uh, nature as well as an intellectual nature, philosophical and theological, uh, European and, uh, and American. I'm going to focus in these lectures on what I'll call, for lack of a better term, academic Anglophone ethics. That is the kind of ethics that's gone on at the major universities in the English-speaking world. And it's a tradition that has followed a single kind of thread for the last hundred years. In focusing on this part of ethics, I'm going to be leaving out a lot of things that are terrifically interesting. And I, and I want to be upfront about that at the very beginning. There's an incredibly rich tradition of ethics uh, that has taken place in the continental universities, the whole tradition associated with phenomenology and existentialism. And I will on occasion in these lectures refer to this tradition, but for the most part, I'm going to ignore it. There are lots of things in the English-speaking world and in the academic English-speaking world that I'm going to uh, ignore. The, the pragmatist tradition, John Dewey, William James, Charles Saunders Peirce, which has been enormously influential in this country has, for one reason or another, been sort of pushed to the sideline in 20th century ethics. And I'm not going to talk much about the pragmatists either, although toward the end of the lectures we will make some reference to them. For this particular audience, an audience for a course supported by an institution called the International Catholic University, many of you will be interested in one of the liveliest parts of 20th century ethics, the contemporary Neo-Thomist tradition. Now again, I'm going to say very little about this tradition, although I will come back to it in my final lecture and say something about why I think it may provide us with a great hope for the future. Uh, Neo-Thomism, for whatever reason, has not been central to this narrow line of research and argumentation and debate and dialectic that's gone on in the leading research universities, in the leading secular research universities, I should say, in England and America since 1903. Now, there might be some debates about whether the story I'm telling, the story of Anglophone academic ethics that runs essentially from G.E. Moore, as I will argue, up until up to Alistair McIntyre and Bernard Williams, 
there might be some debate of whether this is the most interesting story that one could tell in contemporary ethics. And I, I don't want to argue uh, that it is. I do want to argue, though, that it's a very interesting story. There are other lectures in the International Catholic University that will deal with other aspects of 20th century ethics. What we're going to be talking about is Anglophone, academic, moral philosophy that is, for the most part, of the sort that has come to be described in the 20th century is analytic moral philosophy. Now, these lectures are correlated, for those of you taking this course, with lots of other readings and materials on the website for the International Catholic University. I'm going, however, to try to make these lectures on video independent of that other material. We'll see how far, how well I succeed at that. But first, just to give you a, a look at where we're going over the next 12 lectures, if you look at the screen, uh, today I'm going to talk about sort of an some introductory matters with regard to ethics and also the 19th century background for 20th century ethics. In the second lecture, I will be looking at a very interesting man, G.E. Moore, who in many ways is the figure that gets everything started in the 20th century and a, a school of moral philosophy that he was associated with that we've come to call intuitionism. In the third lecture, we will turn to a discussion of emotivism and non-cognitivism and its association especially with a very important and interesting philosopher, A.J. Eyre. In lecture four, we will look at some critics of this emotivist movement in contemporary ethics and especially three remarkable philosophers, Philip Foote, Elizabeth Anscombe, and John Searle. In lecture five, a sort of huge change in moral philosophy occurs about this time, and by this time we're up to the 1960s, and we will discuss what I will call the return to normative theory, and especially in connection with that, some of the work of John Rawls, which we will pick up in lecture six. There are a number of important sort of developments in contemporary uh, moral philosophy in the 1970s and 80s, especially, which focus on redeveloping some of the ideas of 19th century utilitarians like Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, and we'll call this the new consequentialism we'll talk about in Lecture 7. In Lecture 8, we will discuss the rediscovery in the 20th century of the notion of virtue, and in Lecture 9, we will focus that discussion especially on the work of my colleague, Alistair McIntyre. In Lecture 10, we will look at a number of very interesting contemporary figures who have come to be called anti-theorists who react against much of this material we've been talking about in the previous three lectures. In Lecture 11, we will pick up some themes which I will have shamefully neglected earlier about the applied ethics revolution, the entry of moral philosophy into lots of casuistical questions in contemporary academic discussions. I will suggest to you at that time that there's something very puzzling about the applied ethics revolution. And finally, we will conclude in our final lecture with some predictions about where ethics might be going and what kind of trouble we might be in. So that's what we're going to uh, do. Let me begin today. I want to do two things in, in, uh, in this lecture, though. First, make some very general remarks about what ethics is and uh, do this very briefly indeed. And then turn to some questions about the 19th century and why it was that both social and cultural developments in the 19th century and philosophical developments set the stage for this, I think, very exciting story I'm going to be telling about 20th century academic 
ethics. So how should we think about ethics in general? Let's begin with this sort of textbook definition of what ethics is. It seems it'll probably do as well as any other. I suggest here that ethics is rational reflection on human conduct with the aim of directing that conduct in appropriate ways. Now, I'd like you to think about a number of features of this, uh, of this definition. Ethics is rational reflection. It's a matter of kind of standing back from the ethical problems that we're uh, uh, interested in. And it's not just sort of preaching about ethics. It's an attempt to rationally reflect on them, to use the powers of human reason, to sort things out, to put a certain distance between ourselves and the particular ethical problems we might be discussing. Ethics begins, so the story goes, in ancient Greece with Socrates walking around the ancient city of Athens asking people to sort of explain themselves with regard to their ethical views. What he asks them to do is to step back from the particular ethical or moral commitments they might be making and reflect on how these can be justified, how they can be explained, how they can be appropriated in an entire human life. So ethics is rational reflection. It, it of course focuses on human conduct. We're not so much interested in what computers or other higher animals might do. And it's reflection that aims at directing the conduct in appropriate ways. Ethics is not, and we'll see that this is an important feature of our whole discussion of ethics, ethics is not a purely theoretical discipline. Although it involves rational reflection, it also involves an engagement with practice. Ethics isn't preaching, but it must be relevant to the real decisions that we make about our lives. Now, there are, though, lots of other parts of ethics, and I want to just say some things about these other parts very briefly. Indeed, if ethics generally is this kind of rational reflection, uh, what are the other particular investigations that those interested in ethics have been involved in? Well, there's something called descriptive ethics, which simply attempts to tell us what the ethical views of particular populations or social groups might be, what 19th century Victorians really believed about sports and the ethical dimensions of it, say, what ancient Greeks what Homeric Greeks believe about courage. Metaethics, and we'll be saying a lot about this in the next couple of lectures, is a branch of ethics that is the most abstract and reflective. It's the part of ethics that asks the most foundational questions about the truth or falsity of particular ethical claims or the possibility of our even getting at truth in ethics. And I'll say something more about that in just a moment. Normative ethics, on the other hand, is that part of ethics that tries to sort out and justify, still in a reflective way, some set of norms, relatively concrete norms, that can guide our lives. It's that part of ethics, while still theoretical, that tries to actually give us practical advice. Casuistry, which became famous, indeed infamous in some ways, in the Counter-Reformation as a sort of way of avoiding, some people thought, the appropriate kind of ethical reflection, is that part of ethics, if we think of it neutrally, that focuses on particular cases. It's very connected to what today I will talk about as applied ethics. Now, just a little bit more about these meta-ethics, I said is the most reflective part of ethics, that part of ethics that's most distant from, as it were, actual engagement with the practical uh, world. I suggested here 
the kinds of questions that metaethicists, as we now call them, are for the most part focused on. Whether and in what sense moral claims can be true or false. How moral claims are similar and how they're different from kinds of discourse, for example, religious, aesthetic, scientific discourse. Whether moral thought and talk is relativistic. Does moral reasoning aim at the truth or is it merely a play of drives, emotions, attitudes, and learned responses? These questions take us to the heart very quickly of many contemporary questions about moral skepticism, as we might put it. Now, there are a range of objectivist views. If one does metaethics over simply and very broadly, one is asking the question, is ethics objective? If so, in what sense? If it's not objective, what species of subjectivism might uh, be true of ethics? Let me just give you an example of some kinds of objectivism, and we will return to these as we go along. These terms at this point need not pause over their abstract and difficult nature. Aristotelian naturalism is a kind of objectivism that tells us that moral judgments are objective in that they report to us things about the nature of human beings. Their truth relies on something about human nature. Reductive naturalism is maybe a kind of species or a more actually a more general class within which Aristotelian naturalism fits. It's a sort of an objectivist view that tells us that moral judgments mean the same as some other natural judgments of whatever sort to which they can be reduced. Theological naturalism in turn suggests that moral judgments are objective in that they refer to or describe theological facts about the world, if we may use that term. Perhaps they describe what God requires of us. Intuitionism is a species of objectivism that suggests that moral facts are just special facts about the world that can't be reduced to anything else. We'll see that G.E. Moore holds a view like this. Finally, moral rationalism is a kind of objectivism that suggests that moral judgments are just requirements of reason. It's not so much that they report facts about the world. They're not objective in that sense, but they're required of us rationally because they're deliverances of reason. Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher, at the end of the 18th century, held this view. In the same way, there are a number of kinds of subjectivism which I will not pause over. Now, one can be a cultural relativist, which suggests that moral judgments are merely the expression of the sort of norms of one's culture, emotivism, moral judgments, and this is a species of subjectivism, are just a way of our expressing our own attitudes or desires. Existentialism, a sort of popular uh, view and deeply misunderstood view, I think, by many people in the 20th century, is in one of its uh, uh, forms the view that moral judgments are merely the expression, as I put it here, of fundamental choices of human beings. They don't report truths about the world uh, at all. Well, these are some of the features of metaethics and some of the positions that might be taken by metaethicists. Now, normative ethics, I said, proposes and defends a view about the structure and content of a correct ethical theory. We will be saying a lot about the different species of normative ethics later in these, uh, this lecture series. So for now, let me just mention that the great historical debates about normative theory, about how we should think about the most general principles guiding human action, have been debates that have asked us to choose among three kinds of theories. Eritaic theories, which make human virtue 
the sort of focus of ethics, deontological theories, which make notions of rules and obligations at the heart of normative theories, and teleological theories, which in their modern guise have for the most part been associated with consequentialist and utilitarian views. Now this language will all come clear, I hope, in subsequent lectures. Ethics is, I hope this brief introduction suggests to you, quite a diverse area, not just diverse in the different kinds of schools I mentioned earlier in the lecture, but also in the kinds of inquiry that we find in different parts of the subject. We know what line we're going to take. We're going to look at English-speaking academic ethics in the 20th century. And in order to turn to that in the next lecture, where we'll begin talking about this remarkable man, G.E. Moore, I want to say something about what sets the stage for 20th century ethics. And what sets the stage for 20th century ethics, you will not be surprised to hear, is the 19th century. The 19th century was remarkable in lots of ways. We will come back to talking about later on. The 19th century was a century of incredible change. It's a century which we still don't understand uh, well. The debates about the changes that went on in that very long and rich century still go on throughout the academy. When I talk about it as a rich century of change, think for just a moment about some of the social and cultural changes. The Industrial Revolution. In a sense, the 19th century is the century in which science comes of age and, as it were, delivers the goods. The railroads, the steam engines, the machinery of industry transform human life. And they transform human life in ways that, first of all, bring citizens of Western Europe, well, Europe in general, and North America to the great urban centers. We have people moving in the direction of cities where there are new social forms of life, new forms of anonymous living lost in the large cities of the West. Secularization is another part of this phenomenon. Secularization in the sense that religious belief, which has held sway over large parts of the population in Western Europe and North America gives way in important ways. And this is associated with urbanization. We have very good, clear data that as people tend to move to cities, religious belief has a less firm hold on them. The centers of academic life in the 19th century come to be centers where there's sort of widespread and fundamental criticism of traditional religious belief. We also get the movement in the direction of mass literacy. For the first time, large majorities of the populations in the West are able to read and write. And they're released by these new powers to make up their own mind about lots of issues. And compounding all of this in the 19th century, we have this movement of imperialism, which for our purposes we can think of as largely involving changes where not only do we have these enormous changes going on in Western Europe, the cities, the industrial base, the everyday life of these people, but we're also exporting this way of life and in some ways this confusion and this change to the entire world. One of the results of all of these particular changes in the way people lived is that many of the traditional sources of authority, the church, the kind of local small community, these sources of authority lose some of their power. People are looking for new ways to be guided. And ethics itself comes to be under attack in various ways. Think about 
not just the social and cultural changes in the 19th century, but the intellectual currents in the 19th century with import for ethics. Now, let's mention four of these. The work of Karl Marx, with his suggestion that ethics essentially just floats on the back of economics. Marx has a comprehensive theory in which he suggested that what was most fundamental about our life together and the shape of that life and the norms that guide it is determined by features of economics. Ethics was just a way that economics had economic pressure, the pressure of the drive for profit, had on individual persons. Darwin suggested that ethics might have its roots in something like biology. Ethical claims were simply strategies for survival. Although Darwin himself didn't talk this way much, his disciples certainly did. And in contemporary sociobiology, we have a continuation of that way of talking. Freud, writing at the end of the 19th century, suggests that ethics might be just the expression of deep psychological mechanisms. The ethical might simply be the superego, a kind of internalized father figure. Finally, someone quite, not quite as well known, as these three figures, Emile Durkheim, the great French sociologist, suggests that what ethics really is and the voice of the ethical, the voice of conscience, that voice that tells us that we ought to do certain sorts of things and avoid other sorts of things, Durkheim suggests that that voice is simply the voice of society. Now, all of these intellectual currents were attempts in one way or another to subordinate ethics, reflection about how we ought to live, the rules we ought to follow, to other features of human life, economic features, psychological features, biological features, sociological features. And ethics, in an important sense, in this period was in a kind of crisis. Moral philosophy, moral philosophy in the 19th century was for the most part looking for some kind of rational and reflective foundation that could replace ethics as something and ethical principles that could actually guide our lives and be determinate and have a kind of authority over us. This search turned up, I think, two great sources. One, that the ethical might proceed from re human reason itself. After all, science that was behind so much of this was an expression of human reason, and reason seemed to be the most powerful and valuable thing about human beings. Why couldn't it be the source of the ethical and the authority of these norms about how we should behave? This view is associated with Immanuel Kant. The other view associated with the great 19th century utilitarians, whom we will talk about later, was that we could all agree on some sort of shared notion of human happiness, and the ethical might rest on some such notion as our general pursuit of the maximized happiness for all of us. So in the face of the critiques of Freud and Marx and Darwin and Durkheim, philosophy responds by saying, no, no, ethics isn't just a reflection of economics or psychology or biology. Ethics can be an expression of human reason or the shared desire on the part of human beings to be as happy as possible. And we get these two great schools of moral philosophy in the 19th century. Now, what brings us to the 20th century ethics is that at the end of the 19th century, both of these great movements come in to a kind of crisis. The search for the foundation, first of all, as I said, in reason, we Kant, Hegel, some British idealists. 
in the structure of human desires, the utilitarians, Bentham Mill, and Sidgwick. And there, there's a third kind of theory, an attempt to suggest that ethics is related to these naturalizing theories in biology by people like Herbert Spencer and Thomas Huxley. And then the crisis is brought about by certain skeptical responses which we might associate with Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. What is the crisis? And let me end with just a comment on this. Nietzsche was an extraordinary philosopher, a German. He turned out to be Hitler's favorite philosopher, although I don't think we should blame Nietzsche for that. Nietzsche launched at the end of the 19th century a powerful attack on conventional morality and that ideal of human reason and human dignity that lay at the basis of Kant and other Enlightenment views of the foundations of ethics in human reason. We will have occasion to talk more about Nietzsche later in these lectures, but for now it's important to see he called in question the reason and rationalist side of this foundational claim about ethics. Sidgwick, the last of the great 19th century utilitarians, called into question the consequentialist or utilitarian foundation for ethics that was based on a certain notion of maximized human happiness. Sidgwick's argument, which got him into trouble, grew out of his long pursuit throughout his life. He wrote a book called The Methods of Ethics, went through seven editions. In that book he attempted to show that we all have reason to pursue the greatest happiness of the greatest number, this kind of great utilitarian goal. Toward the end of his life he decided that all of his arguments in this respect met insuperable difficulties and he died a broken man thinking that no such argument was possible. The 20th century dawns in ethics admit the wreckage and the ruins of the great rationalist and utilitarian projects. In our next lecture, we will look at how this kind of crisis and this kind of problem gets things underway and spawns the work of G.E. Moore, a very eccentric and quite non-19th century figure who taught moral philosophy at Cambridge. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.